Thank you, Nick. Um, I had a dream last night. I had a dream that I walked in through the church doors at the back there, and um, I came around the corner through the foyer and looked into the sanctuary, and it was completely and absolutely filled with people, like shoulder to shoulder on every single pew here. And the atmosphere was electric. And immediately when I saw people sitting in the pews and there was a buzz in the air, my heart lifted. And the first thought that came to mind is, oh no, my sermon's not good enough if people are actually here. (laughs) Which is silly because, of course, I do my best even though we are online. But, you know, I was thinking this morning after the dream that stuck with me. And normally I completely forget my dreams. But um, this is a picture of the future. No matter what happens, even if COVID-19 and related things last for the rest of my life, and this is the ice age that some are now beginning to say it is, um, this is a picture of the future when we come into God's kingdom, and we will be very close together, shoulder to shoulder in God's kingdom. The scripture reading for this morning comes from James chapter 1, if you've been with us, you know that we are uh, doing a series in the book of James, really, but focusing on chapter 1, because the verses in chapter 1 function as a kind of table of contents for what comes up in the rest of the book. So if you'd listen to the word this morning, I'm just going to read a couple of verses here from verse 9 through to verse 11. Beloved, listen to God's word. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I jump in here, Curtis, could you bring me my manuscript, which I actually forgot there, and I feel like, uh, you know, swinging on a pole with a safety net is fine, but swinging on a pole or a a high, what do you call those things again? A trapeze, a trapeze without a safety net, it's my safety net, so there we are. Ah, I feel much better now. Thank you. I was uh, walking the dog with my daughter Lauren last week, Saturday. Actually, not dog, because now during COVID-19, we've actually somehow, uh, incredibly to me, ended up with two dogs. Uh, Lauren and I were just coming to the end of our walking our dogs, and we heard a very loud crash uh, coming from 88th. We live on 87A, and it was super loud. And I have been in car accidents before, and I've witnessed others, and I knew immediately that this was a car accident, and it was a bad one. It was actually a double bang. There was an original crash, and then there was a second, about half a second to a second after another thump. And so I yelled to Lauren. I had Sadie's leash in my hand, and I threw the leash down. I'm like, take the dogs home, and I threw her the ball, and I started running. And so I ran down 87A, I turned down an alley towards 88th, turned right onto 88th, and indeed, 
um, there was evidence of an accident. The first thing that I noticed is that there was a Honda Civic with its engine basically crumpled right up. The whole front end of the car had been pushed in toward the windshield, and this car had been flipped up and around and landed on the median between um, 88th going eastbound and 88th going westbound. And um, the car was smoking and the horn had been uh, going off and was not stopping going off. And uh, the airbags had gone off and I, immediately, I went up there. The other thing I noticed immediately is that there was only one vehicle. And I'm like, what on earth happened? The trees all look fine. What, what went on here? And so uh, one of the bystanders who was there said, yeah, I saw the whole thing. So what happened is a big black truck was coming down the road from Safeway, heading towards perpendicular to 88th like this, where there's a meridian in the middle. You can only turn right. There's a stop sign. He was going 40 to 60 kilometers an hour was the estimation of this person who saw it happen, flew through the stop sign, hit the Honda Civic which was moving westbound down 88th, somehow head on. The car flipped onto the median backwards with its engine, as I said, almost into, in through the windshield. It flew over the median the other way with its butt end to the trees on the other side. And then this guy started his engine, and took off, and fled the scene. I immediately went over to the guy who was in the accident who was on the phone. As it turns out, he borrowed one of the bystanders' phones to himself call 911. He was bleeding out of his hand. He was very disoriented, and I could tell in a state of shock, shaking. I learned later, later he was 26 years old. His name was Michael, and he was being asked by the operator, I could overhear, whether or not to send an ambulance. Are you okay? And he said, no, I, I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. And I said, hey, do you want me to talk to them for you for a second? And he says, would you please? And so I grabbed the phone. I said, hi, it's Ed Gerber here. Yes, we need an ambulance. We also need police and fire truck. Please, please as soon as possible. It was a hit and run. The guy has fled. The fire department, as usually happens, was the first on the scene, and they began talking to Michael. And then the police officer showed up next, and he questioned Michael about this and that. And then after, he, he was a very young police officer also, and he, Michael, he said to Michael, well, you can go home now. And Michael looked at me and he said, I, should I go home now? I said, well, Michael, I think given your state, we should just wait for the ambulance to come and look you over. The ambulance, the paramedics came. They took him in, and I am sure we're going to take him to the hospital. And I said to him, are you going to be okay? You're all right? He's like, yeah, thanks so much. See you later. As I was walking down 88th back towards my house, I thought, you know, Michael's world today has been turned completely upside down. The day that he thought he was going to have is not the day that he's actually going to now have. And perhaps more than that, I wondered, Michael's whole world in terms of the way he thinks about this world, might be turned upside down. Accidents have a way of doing that, turning our whole world upside down. We thought the world was one way, but then we discover it was another way, where people will engage in hit and runs like that. 
We thought the world was safe, but then we realized the world is not nearly as safe as we thought it was. We thought we could presume upon a long life, but then suddenly we realized that maybe life is not going to be as long or as easy for us as we thought it was going to be. Accidents have a way of completely turning our lives upside down. The foundational through-line story of Scripture is that an accident has happened on the canvas of worldwide history. And this accident has indeed flipped the entire world upside down. It's flipped us backwards, like the car, but it's also flipped us upside down. When Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and disobeyed God. It's as though, Scripture says, Adam and Eve ran through a stop sign at 150 kilometers an hour and hit the future of humanity head on, flipping us backwards and indeed upside down. Upside down in terms of the way we think about this world in so many ways, and then in terms of the way we act in this world. The way we think about God is upside down so often. The way we think about ourselves is upside down so often. The way we think about others is upside down so often. The way we think about how we might experience flourishing, life in abundance, the good life, is upside down so incredibly often. And what this means for us as human beings, what this means for us as Christians is that in a world that has been flipped upside down in so many ways, in its thinking and its behavior, but in that same world that thinks in regard to those things, it's living upside up, it means that not only must we flip ourselves the other way, but we must be willing and ready to look as though we are the upside down ones in this world, even though Our living upside down according to God's values, according to God's ways of thinking about things, according to God's ideas about flourishing, those are actually going to be God's upside up. So to be upside up in God's way in this world where things are upside down is going to make us appear so often that we are living upside down. We're going to look different. We're going to look bohemian. We're going to look strange. We're going to be Peter's peculiar people. And in order to live a flourishing life, then we're going to have to maintain that upside down quality in our life, living into God's upside down kingdom, which is really upside up because we live in an upside down world. It's called the paradoxes of the kingdom. Dante Alagere, a 12th century poet who wrote a masterpiece called the Divine Comedy, explored this theme. The Divine Comedy is broken down into three major parts. Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, which correspond to hell, purgatory, and heaven. And Dante himself, the poet, is taken on a tour by his guide Virgil, first through hell, then purgatory, then heaven. And as he is taken on his tour through hell, 
He goes down and down and down and down and down, eight or nine regions into hell. And as he views these regions, he sees the certain vices and spiritual corruptions that people lived while they were on earth, and then the poetic justice they receive in hell. And he moves down and down and down, and it gets darker and it gets worse, and the sins that had been committed and the evils and distortions are thicker. And then he gets to the bottom of hell, and he comes face to face with the most terrifying, terrible, and ghastly sight he's ever put his eyes on. It's the devil himself, and he wants to get out of there, and Virgil's going to lead him out of there. And so the curious paradoxical thing is that to get up out of the pit of hell, they've got to go down further into hell. So they go through this doorway or passageway. I can't remember it is what it is, but in order to go up out of hell, they got to go down deeper into hell. There's a twist about in the stairs that they come on. They flip themselves upside down and find themselves standing in the twinkling sunlight on earth. It's a parable from Dante. The kingdom of the devil, of hell, is an upside-down kingdom. And so they actually started at the bottom of hell and worked their way up, and the devil was at the uppermost point, closest to the surface of the earth, because hell is upside-down. And so to get out of an upside-down place, you have to flip upside-down yourself. And it's a parable, Dante's sort of saying, of life in our conflicted and upside-down world still. If we're truly to go upside-up in this upside-down world, we got to flip upside-down. Because God's up is the world's down in so many things. The world's down is God's up. And so once again, in order to live into the flourishing life that God has for us, we're going to have to be willing at many junctures of our Christian life to appear as though we are upside down. We are the ones who have chosen to stand on our hands instead of our feet and walk on our hands that way in God's upside down kingdom. James, who walked with Jesus and knew Jesus intimately and would have heard his sermon on the mount and his beatitudes and the paradoxes of the kingdom, knew well that for the flourishing life, we would have to live into this paradoxical kingdom. We'd have to live upside down. But what James also began to witness in the early Christian communities, folks, notwithstanding the presence of the Spirit which gave faith and empowers for a new life, is that this can become very, very difficult for us, not only to grasp the paradoxical kingdom in a cognitive way, but to maintain our living in the upside-down kingdom of God, which is God's right side up, in a world where the currents are so strong. It's difficult. It's challenging. And our default is to go back to living the world's upside up, which is God's upside down. That's our default. James saw it happening in the early Christian communities that he was aware of when it came to the way that they looked at wealth and poverty. And the status that is typically in our world ascribed to those two positions in life. The truth of God's word is that we have value, intrinsic value, each one of us as human beings, because and only because 
God has given us that value from his place of sovereignty, from his position of transcendence. He has elected us, each one of us as human beings, to be his image bearers. Our value is inalienable, each one of us as individuals, because it is given to us by God. Put the other way around, our value as human beings is not conditional upon our group identity, whether I belong to the rich class or whether I belong to the poor class, whether I am a male or whether I am a female, whether I am a Jew or whether I am a Gentile, whether I am slave or whether I am free. No, as Paul says, in Christ Jesus, which is the restoration of the image of God and God's designs in creation, there is no more Jew or Gentile. There is no more slave or free. There is no more male or female but all are one in Christ Jesus. But in the communities that James was aware of, what was happening is that they were going back to the old way. Where your status as an individual and your value as an individual was placed on kind of a hierarchy of value. If you were wealthy, you were at the top of the hierarchy of value, and therefore you were treated in accord with the value that was ascribed to you because of your status, because of your group identity. And what was going on in the church is despite the fact, check chapter 2 and chapter 5 at this point, despite the fact that the rich in the world were suing Christians, despite the fact that they weren't paying them fair wages, when these same rich people, not necessarily Christians, but they might have been, when they were coming to check out these Christian communities, the church would begin to treat those people differently than anybody else in the body of Christ. They would become sycophantic, as you might put it. They would start brown-nosing toward the rich people. And even more than that, they'd say to the poor people in their fellowship, hey, listen, so-and-so is here who has this status. You go sit on the floor while they get the position of honor in the church. And what James is saying to the church is, stop! You are not living in accord with the truth of the gospel. Which is to say, you are not living in accord with the truth of God's way of viewing a human being, God's way of viewing this world. And so you need to invert what you're doing. Reverse what you're doing. Here's his advice, as we hear in our text. Those of you who are poor ought to take pride in your high position because you've been elevated, go look at chapter two, as one who was thought to have nothing, you inherit the kingdom. You've been brought up here. You who are poor ought to consider yourself rich. But you who are rich ought to take pride in your low position. You've been brought on an equal footing in Christ. And if those of you who are rich need further evidence that you are no better than those who are poor, consider your life. Just consider your life, not in this moment of time, but on the scale of time as it flows out. You think you're so high and mighty? You think you're so much better than other people? Well, look, death will come for you even as it comes for the others. There will be a grand equalizer. We will, as Martin Luther King Jr. once said, all of us be reduced to what is life's greatest common denominator, and that denominator is death. Oh, how great are you, rich person. You pers and it's worse than that, as the author of Ecclesiastes will say, because you spend your whole life pursuing wealth and the accumulation of wealth only to leave it to the one who comes after you. It is fundamentally a meaningless pursuit. 
And it's worse than that, James will also say in his, as he goes on in chapter 5, he says, because judgment is coming. You will not be judged on how many toys you had in your garage. You will not be judged by your portfolio, your stock portfolio. That won't be what gets you the favor of God. You are going to be judged on the basis of how you treated your neighbor as an image bearer of God, as one who bears the stamp of divinity in their own person, who carries the sacred within them. Do we in the church look at all those who come in as those who bear the stamp of the divine and who are worthy of being treated the same way as anybody else, whoever has whatever pedigree, whatever marks our world says should cut them above, put them hierarchically above others on our hierarchies of value. In the kingdom of God, so often when it comes to the kingdom of the world, up is down, down is up, north is south, east is west, west is east. And we are called to live in the eyes of the world so often as those who are upside down, who are different, who are catawampus. And not only, friends, when it comes to wealth, but as I intimated before and alluded before, also when it comes to nearly everything that Jesus talks about in his entire Sermon on the Mount can be looked at as a feature of how we are called to live in an upside-down way. All of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, that is complete nonsense. No, no, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a paradox of the kingdom. Blessed are those who are merciful, really? They're the ones who are to consider themselves lucky? Yes, because they will be shown mercy. And then you move on through, blessed are the peacemakers, really? I thought those who are really lucky are those who are strong, those who are mighty, those who can conquer. The Romans look like the lucky ones, not the peacemakers. And then as Jesus goes on reinterpreting, of course, just showing the fullness of the Mosaic law in chapter uh, five and the middle of chapter five and following, it attends to things like how we hold grudges or don't how we operate with forgiveness, how we operate in marital situations as Christians, and we think about that, how we think about our sexuality as Christians, those kind of things. Jesus will touch then again on money and those sorts of things. If you want kind of a litany of how we are to live the upside-down life, you need not go any further than the Sermon on the Mount. And we could spend an awful lot of time talking about the upside-down kingdom. In fact, I believe we tried to do that, I don't know how long it was ago, when we started preaching through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, or when I started preaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. But I don't really want to get into any of those particulars today, sisters and brothers in Christ, because what I want to do, very, very simply, in the time that I have left, is to simply drill home this basic truth In a world that is becoming increasingly post-Christian, in the West, now I'm not not talking about um, places uh, elsewhere in the world where actually Christianity is starting to boom, but in the West right now, in our world where we are becoming increasingly secularized, 
increasingly distanced from the world and life view of Scripture in so many ways, it is going to become increasingly the call of the church uh, to be different, to embrace a posture of peculiarity, to be willing to be bohemian, to be willing to be seen in the eyes of the world as a really strange upside-down sort of people who have this propensity, proclivity, um, preference for walking on our hands. Or to change the image a little bit in a way that I hope sticks, it certainly does for me, to be a people who are um, willing to be seen by the world as sailing with our masts in the water, which is to say sailing turtled. And maybe I need to explain that term. We, when we were kids, my dad had a little laser sailboat uh, with a blue bottom. That's completely irrelevant, but it was one of those features you'll never forget. It had this gorgeous blue hull. And uh, occasionally you would see this hull. We were out on the water on a Soyuz Lake. Usually we sailed a lot on a Soyuz Lake. For those of you who've been there, you know the wind can just blow. At four o'clock in the afternoon, the wind picks up, and that's when we would love to go. And my brother and I, Greg, did a lot of it, and we'd go out. And the fun thing about a laser is the wind can pull you over, and you have to use counterweight, right? You're holding on to the ropes and stuff and use counterweight, and the more you can balance the boat, the faster you will go. And we would buzz across this water, especially when we got heavier. When we were lighter, oftentimes in winds like that, we'd flip onto the side. And if it was especially windy, what could happen is the wave, the, there would be waves, and the waves would come, they'd hit the side of the blue hull on the bottom, and, and slowly jostle the mast down and down and down like this. If you didn't respond to be on its side soon enough, it would go until the mast was facing right down to the bottom of the lake, the hull was facing the sky above. And it's very, very difficult to get the boat from this turtled position, as you call it, back up into the upright position. But the image that I want to be in your head is in our world that is upside down but thinks it's upside up, friends, we're going to have to learn increasingly to be content to be seen as those who are sailing with our masts in the water. It looks completely foolish. The sail is down to the bottom, it appears. You see fish going by. Sometimes we feel that way. It's going to be a challenge. We're going to feel like we're taking on water. We're going to want to set the boat back up right. Because you know what? We don't want to be different. We don't want to be called phobic in one kind or another. Right? We don't want those things. We want to be a part of the crowd. We want to be loved. We want to be seen as virtuous. But what happens when some of the virtues of our world are vices within the Christian world and life view? Are we going to be willing to look like we're sailing with our masts down in the water? This is my question for us this morning. In an increasingly secularized North America, are we as a church prepared? Are we equipped? Are we willing to sail with our masts in the water? By appearances, which of course is really God's sky. It's the sky that will lead us into flourishing. It's where the wind is really going to be blowing. Are we going to have what it takes to run the course upside down? <laughs> what will give us this strength? Let's just admit right now, and I admit for myself, I find this unbelievably difficult. I have this disease called wanting to be liked. 
I'm getting better as I get older. I'm less concerned about being as liked as I used to, but a lot of us have this disease of really wanting to be liked by others, and it's not all disease, please. You know, I take this advisedly, but what's going to give us strength? How will we endure? How do we become the sort of people who are fine being upside down in the world's eyes? Well, the central foundational answer that I know of in my own life and as I read scripture is this one. The more and more we fall in love with the person of Jesus Christ and understand his wise, wise teachings, which of course embrace the entirety of scripture, to the degree that we fall madly in love with Jesus and understand why he says what he says, to that degree will we become strong. And maybe I could put it even more simply. To the degree we see the beauty of the wisdom of God and why, for example, you never create a hierarchy of value among human beings, but that we are all equal. When we see the beauty of our Lord and him walking through his own upside-down kingdom, that's what will strengthen us because, you know what, people will do a lot for beauty. This isn't just pressure on the will, but we can see how beautiful are the ways of the Lord. Go back to Psalm 119, the beauty of the word of the Lord. It's gold to those who find it. I end where I begin with a story that includes my daughter, Lauren. Uh, Lauren gets a double mention this morning because Lauren has been forcing Michelle and myself to watch a show with her that she has been assigned by one of her teachers at Surrey Christian School, and I love this assignment. She has been assigned, I think it's a part of her Bible class, to watch The Chosen, but to watch it with her parents. And then there's a whole bunch of questions that we have to ask uh, and answer afterwards. And for those of you who are not familiar with this TV series actually called The Chosen, it's on Netflix, and there's also several episodes on YouTube with the director speaking before, then speaking after. But a little secret, you can actually fast forward through the director speaking and then just not listen to the director speaking afterwards. But if you want to, you can. In any event, these shows profile the life of Jesus as told in the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John. And I am so used to seeing hokey Christian films, hokey Christian movies. This one, I am constantly holding back the tears. It's so unbelievably well done. From all that I can tell and all that I've seen so far, it is faithful to what Scripture says. It's faithful to what is plausible to the history in which all of these things were taking place. And of course, one of the things it does is it energizes your imagination for what's going on there. We are seven episodes in at this point. And I must say, also, the figure of Jesus. When you, I, have any in this room actually seen The Chosen yet? No, you haven't. Okay. The figure of Jesus, for me, this is very personal. But when I watch this actor, I, really, I feel like, oh my goodness, this could be what Jesus was actually like. And my heart leaps within me. He is, it's spectacular, really. Um, and so we're seven episodes in, and this episode, episode seven that we just watched last week, 
was about the calling of Matthew. And the director has very wisely, leading into um, this episode, shown us a picture of Matthew, who was, of course, a tax collector. And he imagines, I think fairly, that probably the disciple Matthew was really, really smart because they didn't have calculators in that day. Um, you had to be the calculator as you were gathering taxes and doing the accounting for Rome and all that kind of thing. But they also show how he's reviled by the Jewish people. Because to be collecting taxes on behalf of an oppressive Rome was to betray your own people. So he's seen as a pariah, he's disliked, he's reviled, his own parents think that he's wasting all of his great intellect and gifts by doing something that is against what God wants for him. And they've shown that Matthew has encountered Jesus a few times in episodes one through six. He's seen Jesus um, heal a, I think it was a paralytic. And so he witnessed and he's like, oh, is this real? What, who is this guy? And he's heard Jesus speak in a couple of occasions. So his interest is getting piqued. In episode seven, then towards the, ep- the end of the episode, Jesus walks by with his disciples, Matthew's tax collector booth. And um, Jesus doesn't look at Matthew at all. He just walks straight on by and Matthew glances and looks at Jesus. And it's as though Jesus feels the eyes on his back. And so Jesus turns around to the tax collector booth and looks at Matthew. Then he says, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew looks this way and that. There's a Roman centurion on his one side and he kind of shuffles his papers. He's like, it's the moment of decision do I or don't I follow Jesus? And he decides to follow Jesus. And the Roman centurions, what are you doing? You're going to regret this. Don't do this, Matthew. Don't do this. And he goes and he's getting excited. He's going toward Jesus. And the disciples are appalled. Lord, you can't do this. Do you know who this guy is? You can't do this. This is too different, they say. And Jesus, as he is putting his arm around Matthew, says to the disciples with a smile, with a smirk. It's, just, it's like a Mona Lisa smirk. He's like, get used to different. Are we prepared to get used to different? Are we prepared to being different? And being okay as being seen that way by a world. I hope so. Let's pray. Holy Spirit of God, give us the strength and the power to live with our masts straight down into the water, if that's what it takes in order to be faithful to you. We, we don't want to be different, Lord. We really don't. We don't want to look strange. We don't want to look peculiar. We don't want to lose friends. We don't want to lose family. We don't want to be called names. We don't want to receive labels or epithets that are unfavorable. So we confess that we don't want that, but at the same time, we do want to be faithful to you because you are so incredibly beautiful. Help us to get used to different, your kind of different. Help us to fall in love with it. Help us to see how beautiful it is. And Lord, how you are the capital B beauty behind the beauties of your kingdom way. Forgive us where we fail. Lord, we know this is never about a works righteousness kind of thing. We know that in this church. We know it. It's more our desire, O God, to respond to you in gratitude and in love. We love because you have loved us first. 
but we can't do it without your spirit. So give us your spirit and help us to walk in wisdom's way in this church and in the world as a witness to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.